Hey folks, uh, welcome to the Indic Book Club's Indic Chat today. I'm in conversation with Deepika Ahlavat, who is a uh, museum curator, an art consultant, and the author of a novel, uh, several novels in fact. Uh, this one that we're discussing uh, today is Maya's Revenge. Uh, we're not actually discussing the novel, we're using it as a segue to discuss the loss of India's art inheritance but it does provide an important background, albeit fictional, uh, of um, how we came about to losing so much of our heritage. So Deepika, if you could just take some time and tell us what the novel is about. Yes, thank you Abhijit, and thank you for everyone who's going to listen to this broadcast. And thank you to the Indicate Academy for providing this platform. Um, first, I must correct you, Maya's Revenge is my only novel, though I have other non-fiction works um, that have been published. Um, and uh, other novels are in the works. Uh, I might inflict them upon the public. But um, well, Maya's Revenge started when I started working on Prince of India. And uh, I did a, a, an exhibition uh, on Prince of India at the Victoria and Albert Museum with uh, other curators, and it was highly influential in bringing this material culture to the attention of both the art world and perhaps even to that of historians. And there was a lot of research uh, from that uh, project, which was um, very intriguing, and I thought that this should see the light of day. One of the most important things that um, it sort of brought out was the fact that India was very close to becoming um, uh, a federation of states. Uh, for that, I must go to the background of how uh, India under the British was governed and what was the structure of governance. So uh, the Raj was essentially a two-tiered um, or two-leveled um, system, which is called normally the system of indirect rule and direct rule. So parts of India which had been annexed by the British and were directly uh, controlled by first the East India Company and then by the British Raj was of course British-governed India, uh, which is not part of our discussion right now, except in an ancillary way. The second part of India, which was about one third of the country, was never directly ruled by the British. This was in fact ruled by the princely states and they had varying degrees of treaties and sunads by which they were bound to what is called the paramount power. Right. So in the early 20th century, in the 20s, 30s, and even 40s, there were many different plans as to how these two structures were going to align themselves to the new political entity that would be formed should India gain independence. In the 20s and 30s, when there were a number of very powerful princes representing India, both domestically and on the international circuit, this was said to be that essentially these princes would, and these states would retain their semi-independent status and simply the paramount, paramount power would change from the British to the political um, entity that took over the governance of British governed India. This retained a extremely valid political identity till the very end of negotiations towards independence. And then of course, Sadar Patel came in, a series of um, very, very crucially important negotiations took place, 
something which I'm sure nobody imagined would have been possible. But one must also imagine that a lot of these political entities, that is the princely states, gave over their independence um, very much in the hope that they would be joining a union in which the interests of themselves and their people would be looked after. So this was very much a joint enterprise in which violence and coercion were not uh, a dominant, did not take a dominant part. Uh, and so this led us to a situation where the princes were given their titles, privileges, and privy purses, mm -hmm. and they were allowed to keep their uh, their palaces uh, and a large part of, of their sort of personal wealth, and uh, were also incorporated slightly into the political governance of their states in uh, semi-executive positions like Rajpamuks, etc., where they didn't have actual political power unless they wanted to enter the political arena through the democratic a process of um, actually fighting elections. However, in 1972, something quite dramatic happened, which changed all of that. And that, of course, was the abolition of the privy purses. So, right. So now, I did um, actually answer the question about the novel. So Maya's Revenge is set in a, in a world in which 72 doesn't happen. And the amalgamation process in 47 is such that the princes retain their semi-independent status and their ability to, to run their states in very much the way they used to do when the British were the paramount power. Right. So I'm very curious about one thing. You said that uh, when they joined this project, they saw it as a national project. And yes. they expected so certain... many of them. It would be very difficult to homogenize this process, but a lot of them were invested in the idea of India. Yes. Absolutely. Um, what were the, I mean, they extracted concessions for them, themselves, uh, and this is what people always remember about the abolition of privy purses, because there is one place where Sadar Patel himself calls them rotten fruit, even though that uh, speech was made in Gujarati to, uh, uh, and it was never reported to the um, princes till much later. Uh, but what I wanted to ask you was, what concessions did they extract for their people? Uh, because you said they saw it as a national project. Well, I wouldn't call them concessions so much as the fact that um, they basically got, what were their rights before the amalgamation? Basically, they had the right to gather the taxes, they had the right to um, carry out justice, basically all the forms of the government that is uh, the state, a state function today. The majority of those functions were held by uh, the princely states. So they gave up all of these in exchange for the fact that they would continue to retain their titles, that their, their personal wealth would not be taxed or retrospectively taxed. And um, the fact that they would get a small maintenance fee for direct heirs recognized by the paramount power, which would automatically also dwindle as time passed. This right. was a transition arrangement till they actually gained economic independence and were able to look after themselves and their assets, not to mention their vast people who were dependent upon them for their livelihood. That was the sole concession they, they sought. And in many ways, this is not an equal transaction because they gave up far more. Of course. So basically they gave up real power in exchange for cultural uh, recognition of their, well, rec state recognition of their status as the leader of their people and as the um, sort of cultural representative of their region in that sense. Of their region. Of, of their yeah. region. And, um, and also the fact that they did not want the new state to persecute. 
because they had assets. They always, I mean, that was the nature of how monarchies work. Yeah. And um, what the state ended up doing after 71 and 72 was to persecute them for having those assets. Right. So um, that brings about an interesting contrast because uh, what we wanted to take this to was the preservation of our cultural heritage. How was culture preserved in direct British-ruled India as opposed to, say, in the princely states? Uh, was it better preserved in the princely states um, as opposed to British India, direct ruled India? I would think so, yes, um, very much. Uh, the British had a very political agenda in how Indian culture was represented and understood. First of all was the, say, the... Um, uh, now, this is a very tricky question because it seems to embroil every small British official, ruin, yeah. you know, sort of finding yeah. Sanji Stupa or finding um, mm -hmm. uh, Harappa into a larger political project of, of um, British superiority. Right. This is not how everyone started, but let's not forget that this was how they were conditioned to believe. They were believed, most people at that time naturally believed that if mm. you were white and British, you had a natural right to rule because that was all the conditioning that had happened by the end of the 19th century. It was a very natural presumption. And mm. all forms of knowledge in which India was recognized, explained, understood, both historically and in the present, was to preserve that particular kind of uh, cultural logic. Um, so although, although these people didn't set out with a kind of a cunning plan to, okay, mm. I'm going to show India in this light, they were co-opted naturally into this uh, system. So when they thought of the Indian past, it was naturally like anything good that they saw in the past was must be a European influence. So therefore, you have a golden age of the Guptas, but it's only possible because there had been contact with the Greeks. And the Greeks were naturally, of course, the bastion of Western civilization, because to them, that is how they looked at the Greeks. So the positioning of the Greeks themselves was not as, as a Eurasian race, but mm. a very much a Western race. So all of these projects are embroiled into how a British India constructed Indian identity. Now, these were the first people to set up, for example, the museum system, which played an extremely political role in setting up India into certain kinds of boxes, into certain kinds of intellectual categories, which again justified the colonial project in many ways. This doesn't mean that excellent scholarship doesn't, didn't take place, but it took place within the political perspective of that particular uh, paradigm. Uh, in the princely states, culture was more alive. So mm -hmm. palaces were not something that you put in aspect and said, okay, this represents 16th century architecture. But whatever function that palace had fulfilled in the 16th century, it continued to fulfill in the 20th century except using 20th century tools. So you saw city palaces, which had parts of the 16th century, but kept on being added to for the current political purposes it would serve. So that heritage was living and alive. And music and dance, for example, served certain um, functions to create uh, entertainment value at the court, to create hierarchy, to create certain forms of relationships between the ruler and the subject, certain acts of patronage, certain acts of symbolic and religious cultural um, uh, production, which were alive and maintained in the princely states, which is why if you think of any of the gharanas today that survive and which are co-opted by this nationalist Indian project, which is, you know, 
in many cases, a communist nationalist union project. Mm -hmm. Many of these are survivors of conflict states. You can think of any of them. And you will end up coming to a patron-client relationship between an important royal patron and a right. school of musicians. So is it fair to say that these princely states were largely insulated from this British political project of, well, white supremacy, uh, almost in a sense? Uh, I'll ask you this uh, for a reason, because in Travancore, you see that this whole concept of the matrilineal, which was in effect a matriarchal uh, rule, uh, becomes delegitimized because all the Ranis, they weren't called Ranis, they were called Rajas, uh, were, had British governesses that spoke to them in English and taught them that going around topless really wasn't the dumb thing. And somehow women ruling was a very bad thing. And you see that transition from matriarchy to patriarchy happened within a very short span of time. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about how the political project of the British actually played out in the princely states. What was their view on the British right to rule uh, culturally in that sense? Um, Travancore is a, is a remarkable, it's a different example because of the, of the way that it establishes matrilineal uh, descent. Mm. I should point out that matrilineality here necessarily didn't mean female rulers. It just meant that descent passed on to the female rather than to the male. So yeah. for example, during the majority of the Raj, Travancore had a lot of male rulers, but their children would not inherit, the sister's children would so this, uh, uh, this is, or, or rather the daughter's children would inherit if, 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 if there were any from that union. Um, so that was, so the British codified the system into certain ways, but they didn't try to change that particular aspect of Travancore descent rule. Whereas everywhere else it was through male primogeniture from the male line. So they mm -hmm. didn't, they did not, I mean, they took, um, it was a, a very deliberate political project not to interfere in these particular mechanisms because it would uh, basically, it was, however much we think of British rule as a very strong entity, which was, which was very difficult to shake, it was actually a very carefully constructed castle of cards. And the British were very aware that as soon as you took away one or two crucial bastions, the whole thing might collapse. So one of the things that they absolutely did not want to jeopardize was their relationship with the Princely States. So although they used lots of methods of coercion, abdication, forced abdication, et cetera, et cetera, to change people who were not completely in line with the way they wanted the Princely States to fit in into the system of indirect rule, they didn't actually try and overthrow it because they'd already seen the results of that in um, 1857. Yeah. So, uh, uh, sorry, go ahead, sorry. Uh, so that, uh, the Travancore is, although it changed very much, remember the British were also coming from uh, very much during this period in a female Raj. I mean, Victoria was a woman. She was the longest reigning British monarch. This was not something that was that was new to them, or, or they didn't want to change cultural structures, which is why they ended up creating, for example, different personal laws for Hindus and Muslims, even though they had changed the entire legal system from the Qadi or the local justice systems to a unified legal system. And they're setting up civil courts or setting up criminal courts if, within a modern legal system that would have been the time, surely, to set up a uniform personal code. They didn't do that. 
they kept personal laws for Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, etc., quite separate. And for that reason, because they, they thought that that was like um, a, a, a East India Company kind of thing to do. It was playing with fire, which I didn't really want to do. Right. So um, with the, I mean, fast forwarding to 71, 72 now, um, with the abolition of the privy purses, what was the direct impact on the arts? Um, so what specifically, if you can talk us through the sequence of things, of how it happened, what it affected the most, what it affected the least? Okay. So there are two important things that happened here. One is 71 is the abolition of the privy purses. Now, this had been a major political platform for Indira Gandhi, especially under the young guard of Chandrasekhar, who said that this is a democracy. We cannot have people who are not the same as everybody else or people who are getting money from the state. Um, so you must abolish this. This was a crucial, uh, supposedly a crucial election promise. And so Indira Gandhi uh, put it on Chandrasekhar and said, they won this. It's not on my hands. And she put it to many of her uh, ministers. So, for example, Yadavendra Singh was, was one of her ministers at the time who happened to be Maharaja of Patiala. The Maharaja of Kaputala was on the front lines fighting the Pakistanis, in fact, when he heard the news that he was no longer a Maharaja. So these were people who were actively embroiled in, in really the, the, the upkeep of the, of the democracy. Um, so the previous verses were taken away, but not just, which was basically breaking a key tenet of the constitution. The constitution had enshrined the rights of these people, which were, which were rudely taken away. A lot of these cases are, I think, from Pakistan did exactly the same thing, following the same model. Um, um, a few, in many ways, uh, a certain tenets of it slightly earlier than India, some tenets of it slightly later than India. And I think some of these cases are even pending uh, in The Hague because this was essentially the breakdown of a treaty between independent states. So there are some cases which are actually still pending in The Hague. And many people would argue that this decision is illegal and uh, actually should, should be undone. But the direct consequence of this was that between 71 and the abolition of the, of, of the privy purses, a large amount of wealth tax essentially became uh, sort of, uh, that a lot of these people became immediately liable for a lot of wealth tax on all their properties. So they had to surrender a lot of them to the government who put them to not very useful purposes. And this time we must also remember that Indira Gandhi was locked in a battle of egos with a few Maharanis. For example, Gwalior and um, the, Maharani, the Maharani of Jaipur at the time. And uh, this also led to a lot of uh, very, some would say illegal practices in the way these people were persecuted. Um, but a more wide-ranging consequence was that the palaces and the ports, which had been, and also the temples, right. which had been the seat of cultural um, richness, of, of had been the seat of culture for many of these regions, suddenly lost all patronage and it became burdens for the people who had, who had and whose ancestors had looked after them for a very long time, in fact, who had been crucial in creating these sites of culture. And people tended to look upon the Maharaja figure as somebody who was, you know, constantly, uh, somebody who made these temples, made these palaces, made these forts as a personal project of vanity, 
Whereas forgetting that when we celebrate India today and we want to have best sites of everywhere, where do we go to? All of these sites were made by Maharajas and Rajas and all. I mean, which communist project in India has produced one site where you can take a foreign tourist and say, okay, this is part of my Indian heritage? Because this is not just about India. As a wider discussion, hmm. the production of cultural sites, the production of artistically important ideas, music, art, dance, anything which leads to the, is, is a result of surplus. It requires mm. patronage. In India, that patronage has always been provided by the royal houses. Mm. So the direct impact of 71 was that uh, most of these people were left with 400, 500 retainers, people who had done no work except serve the royal service in all sorts of capacities, who were left to fend for themselves. In fact, I remember one friend of mine, he said this to me in confidence, so I won't reveal his name, but essentially he made a proposal to Indira Gandhi saying, take my palaces, I have no, I will keep not one property with me, but make sure that you will look after it and you will look after everybody who works for these sites. But right. his proposal was rejected. As a result, the palaces fell down. Um, these were 16th century, 15th century palaces, which had been the center of so many towns falling down upon themselves because there is no money to look after them. And these properties require a huge amount of funds to look after or even to upkeep. Um, their interiors have been looted. And of course, between 71 and 72, of course, a lot of people also sold uh, what they could, which included jewels, which included uh, anything that could. And a lot of very, very unscrupulous foreign dealers made absolute fortunes at that time. Uh, also because a lot of them were being persecuted for having, when 72, happened they passed an antiquities law which made it imperative for them to register every antiquity that they had and it became a criminal offense not to do so so that was also a very very um ripe era for uh, bribery and corruption yeah but essentially also ensured that a lot of this stuff went underground never to surface it so i'm very curious um was it um Give me a proportion roundabout. How much of this was personal peak uh, at being challenged politically? Because the Rajas at that time were sort of emerging as the people's voice against an increasingly unpopular Indira Gandhi. And how much of this was just a project at economic plunder? Because Nehru used to do this. Every time the budget went into a deficit, he'd nationalize some profitable industry to make up the revenues. Uh, and by the end of 71, we do know that India was in a serious, serious economic crisis. So how much was economic, how much of this was political, uh, were there other factors at play? Uh, I would say it's mostly political vendetta. I don't think that it, this, this project would have yielded any kind of uh, substantial material benefit to the exchequer at all. The Puri purses, as I said, were automatically dwindling. They were set up to be automatically dwindling, which is when a successor got hold of the Puri purse, it would be a percentage less than his predecessor had it. Right. So this was, this was something that would end up dwindling to nothing in, in the end. Uh, as to the wealth tax, most of them didn't have liquid money to pay wealth tax. So all they did was ended up handing over property which the government didn't know what to do because there were no buyers for them. So it was it was an absolute shambolic project which did nothing except ruin India's um, cultural heritage. 
uh, and yeah, definitely answering your question, a political vendetta, more of political showmanship, mm -hmm. rather than, and of course, at the cost of, of putting the constitution at risk, because if the constitution is not sacred, what is? Right. So th this then comes back to this image we have of Indira Gandhi as being extremely concerned about the cultural heritage of India. And what's really coming through is that she probably did more to destroy the cultural heritage of India than anything else. Yes. In my opinion, this, these events of 71, 72 are as disruptive to India's cultural heritage as a cultural revolution in China. Right. I mean, that's a huge statement to make because in the Cultural Revolution, you actually had people going around book burning or artifact burning and things like that. Uh, this wasn't... And you find that that's what a lot of people had to do because she brought up these extremely onerous laws about registering antiquities and arresting people willy-nilly. A lot of these people, for example, burnt their silver furniture, got the silver that covered it into ingots, disposes of paintings were burnt or pulped. I cannot tell you. If the state didn't do it, she made people do it on her own. As I said, it is impossible to find a lot of this heritage that, that has been simply lost because of the actions of those two years. Um, can you give us some of the more memorable pieces or, uh, uh, well, pieces of heritage or um, cultures subcultures that were lost because of this. I mean, the most prominent that's, thing. Yeah, that's the tragedy, Abhishek. We don't know. But if, for example, um, for example, one of the places that I work with in India, Meherangar, is holding an exhibition about the, the history of that particular region. This exhibition will travel to three major museums across the world. Mm -hmm. But when they want to show jewelry of a king, they cannot show, there is nothing in India to show because there right. is nothing that anybody wants to show to anyone or it doesn't survive. So they mm. have to borrow from outside this country. That's the extent of it. These are sarpages, jewelry that a king used to wear. This, this would have been widely prevalent in India, but we right. can't find a single one today. That is a tragedy. And that's very curious because some of the best Mughal Kundan jewelry, I mean, um, uh, Mughal and Kundan jewelry that you find is in the uh, Amir of Kuwait's collection. And you have a very small part of the, the collection of the Nizam of Hyderabad. Uh, the Amir of Kuwait doesn't have an Indian collection. The Amir of Kuwait's son does. The son, yeah. Yeah. And um, so I've, this is really bizarre because, you know, in newspapers, you find so much pressure applied on our ambassadors that every time a lot of Gandhi's letters comes up for sale, they have to spend vast amounts of money, crores and crores and crores, acquiring these letters. Uh, which really, I mean, the cultural value of that is almost zilch. On the other hand, you have these incredible jewels, the carved gems and all of that coming up, which the government pays absolutely no attention to whatsoever. Actually, a lot of these would be acquired by Indians. There are very many wealthy Indians who are buying, well, not art not to my taste, but certainly art in the modern world, which is worth a lot of money. So they're taking part in the art world, not perhaps to the extent that wealthy Chinese take part or, or, or people of comparable wealth from other cultures take part. But I think that kind of limitation is because of the extremely um, badly written antiquities law, which is still in force in India. 
which essentially makes it criminal to own artworks and it takes them out of the art market. And I think that the art market and art are inextricably linked. Their value is, their monetary value at least, needs to be a tradable and freely tradable commodity so that people look after these works of art. And if that's not the case, then people simply don't participate in that market. And if they do so, they don't do it on the open market. So that benefits absolutely no one. It doesn't benefit people because you can't get to see it. It doesn't benefit scholars because we can't study it. It doesn't benefit museums because we can't show these works of art. And it certainly doesn't benefit the government who cannot tax it because all these transactions don't take place in the open. So what do you think is the way forward? I mean, uh, realistically, can we actually look at the state taking a backseat to this? Or do we follow That's the healthiest way to look at at it. Uh, this medieval art and, uh, and culture, which, which is not a part of, say, a temple or a sculpture that belongs to a temple or an institution, that's a completely different ballgame. Mm-hmm. Idols, etc., etc., which belong to certain settings, which have no personal ownership, should definitely not be traded on the open market. But things that used to belong to people, those rights should be reinstituted to the owner, and the owner should not be penalized for owning them. Free trade should be allowed in those commodities. And the more the government, basically, if we're okay with getting rid of license Raj and everything else, why do we have license Raj for the antiquities? Because it does nothing except penalize the owner. I agree. Now, that would be the law in an ideal world. Unfortunately, in India, you know, we've got 50 shades of left. Uh, Even the right isn't really a proper right wing in that sense. So what do you think, do you think there are alternative methods where the state actually plays a role? For example, like say the Russian uh, state diamond fund that Peter the Great set up, which the Soviet government never really abandoned. They continued to keep that as a critical national resource, acquiring gems and jewelry and uh, uh, artistic expression through uh, gems. Uh, for the national uh, uh, preservation of national culture. Yes, but don't forget how how much of this was already acquired. If if the Indian state had done something of this sort, that is, Mm -hmm. it said to the princely state that, okay, you know what, we're going to compensate you and acquire uh, these particular goods for you and keep them in a central museum, most people would have very happily agreed. Except that as far as I can understand, a lot of these states, first and regalia, etc., went into the hands of, of extremely unscrupulous civil servants, again, never to be scared. Of and um, uh, so this has disappeared. With the Russians, it was, it was a complete coup, a regime change, and whatever jewels they acquired in, after the revolution, they kept in the central bank. But of course, a lot of this also dissipated, both in auction of the crown jewels and as part of uh, corruption mm-hmm. within the Politburo. But uh, uh, some part of it remains. That's absolutely true. But in India, they didn't even do that. They didn't even bother to do that. So it really is quite a criminal um, ending to this uh, saga. So tell me, I mean, this has been a serious erosion of trust. Like you said, it violated the Constitution. It was probably illegal. Um, If today we adopt, say, the Iranian model, which is you know, the, uh, the Khomeini regime didn't want any of the jewels of the Shah or the paintings, especially the paintings of the Shah to be in display. But now finally they've opened up the museums and put all the gems and jewelry in display. 
Today, if the government said, okay, let's do something like this. Um, do you think royals would actually agree with that given how huge a breach of trust there was in the first place? No, I don't think they'll agree. And I don't think they have any room to agree because they have already, once you've broken the trust to this degree, there is no way that it can be mended. I don't think it, it can be mended. But as far as the, the government acquiring these pieces, this has happened in the case of the Nizam. Mm. The government paid a market price of some of the jewels that they wanted to sell, which were um, and uh, which the government acquired, not perhaps at ideal market value, but they give them some recompense, which was a relief. But uh, what has happened to these jewels? They're occasionally put on display in a, in a public exhibition, but the public cannot go to see them, which is a which is a huge loss to the exchequer because if if you had a system like the Iranian crown jewels where you could go and look at these vaults, just set up like um, showcases, you would make revenue out of those acquired, and probably in a few years you would make up, in fact, for um, actually the cost of acquisition. But mm. they don't seem that far. It's locked up in the RBI, and nobody gets to see it except some some officials somewhere who's not a qualified curator or in fact qualified to work in the museum world at all decides that, okay, you know, it's time to have an exhibition. I think that's a huge shame. But that also brings in the question of capacity. I've noticed that the curators of all our national museums are, sorry to use this word, but complete dunces. They really haven't done any serious courses in curation. The, well, uh, I disagree with you on that. There are qualified curators in our museums, except that our museums are not autonomous so that the people who run museums are actually bureaucrats. So if somebody's running the dairy board one day and then goes on to run you know, a, 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 a national museum, how is that person supposed to know the difference between anything from, say, what's a Mughal painting and a Fabergé? They, they know nothing. How can you? Because if that is not your field, how can you? Like, I won't expect to know the difference between a, a a dairy cow of this kind and of another kind. People are not born Renaissance men. You know, we don't know everything. We need specialists and we need museums to be autonomous. There needs to be empowered trustees and curators and directors who know the business, who know the world, who are scholars in their fields. They need to be running museums. Right. But um, there used to be a time in between, you know, when uh, th there was this sort of quasi-control that a national airline like Air India was still under the Tatas and you had a period where uh, certain well, um, artistically inclined people, certainly cultured people, had a certain say in all of this. Uh, but then that didn't go too well because you have examples of, say, Pupul Jaikar, for example, taking a lot of these artifacts out of India for exhibitions and bringing them back completely damaged or destroyed. Well, that's something that needs to be done between the hope. For example, when I uh, was a part of the Maharaja exhibition in the Victorian Albert Museum, I took lots of artifacts out of India, but they were returned probably in better condition because we also undertook conservation work while they were in India. That's a loan agreement between museums and museums. Modern museums do everything to look after uh, the loans that they, that they acquired. After all, the reputation is at stake. There is an extremely rich and vibrant museum community across the world, which it builds great cultural bridges between civilizations and people. And I think Indian museums ought to become a part of this. Many are, for example, the, um, uh, the Chhatrapati, um, uh, Chhatrapati Maharaj Shivaji Vastu Shangrahale in Bombay, 
which used mm -hmm. to be the Prince of Wales Museum, is doing some amazing work because they've had the luxury of having the same director for many years. He has a larger artistic vision. He understands the wider museum framework across the world. And they're holding, not, they've not only improved their museum spaces uh, to make it a better experience for visitors uh, and for children to, to get to knowledge about what they're looking at in a, in a wider cultural and political context, but also they're holding some very amazing research-based exhibitions uh, based on their holdings and also on loans from other parts of the country. So they're doing some amazing things. And I think that we should um, encourage them by going and visiting that museum, um, finding out that they're doing some amazing things, but also to learn from that model and adopt it more widely. Great. So how do we then do two things? One is capacity build. And the second is draw more attention to museums that are actually doing innovative things in India and encourage them? Well, one of the things that I personally am doing is that I'm writing a series of uh, articles for Swarajya magazine and also for Creative India magazine, which is also comes under um, the Indic Academy umbrella, I think, mm -hmm. uh, in which I highlight the contribution of institutions and curators who are looking at um, the preservation of, of Indian cultural art and heritage. And there is a huge network of people who are doing some amazing things across the world. So mm -hmm. one is to unite their efforts and say that, and also to, to uh, celebrate that because, and there's just no point in reinventing the wheel. If there are certain models which are working across the world for collections um, and for the preservation of heritage, then we should look at adopting them rather than creating completely new frameworks. Um, and I think that Number two, the, the Arts and Antiquities Law of 1972 has to change. The first and foremost article that must go from this is that um, we must make sure that the definition of an antiquity must become more defined. For at this moment, it's anything over 100 years old. Mm. And then it is something which has an importance towards India's artistic uh, past. Mm -hmm. I don't think an antiquity should automatically be banned from export. I think it should be allowed to participate in the international art market. There should be a committee set up as it is in most countries that if a particular work comes on the market and an institution feels that it must have it to tell a particular story or that it is extremely vital for the, the, the story that that object tells about that region's history or, or that place's history, then they should compensate the owner for having, for that particular object you can't just willingly acquire it because that all that does is sends everything into the black market right so with the antiquities act uh, where is the greatest resistance to reform coming from well i think most people are just afraid of this kind of you know mindless left-leaning outrage which doesn't really understand how this market works and are likely to sort of lash out under the cultural ministry but I just think there was just a lot of inertia under Congress rule. This is a Congress-initiated enterprise, and I don't think that any other government has considered it important enough um, to take on, especially if it comes with a kind of a mindless leftist rage saying, oh my God, they're trying to get rid of our national heritage going out of the country mm -hmm. without understanding how the market works, without understanding at all how... Um, you know, how essentially all this law has done is made everything invisible and inaccessible to the Indian people. But that's kind of the problem because the arts and humanities to a large extent in India, at least the visible parts of it, 
are monopolized by leftist uh, leftist beliefs and uh, almost stooges, if you want to call it that. So invariably, if you have reform of any kind, it is going to set off a huge hailstorm of possibly irrelevant people, but nevertheless very vocal, visible people. Yes, and, and I think that the government has a majority. It should be able to have enough research on its side to actually say that, actually, you know what, we're following a model for many countries where this has worked very successfully, whose heritage preservation record is better than ours, whose tourism numbers are better than ours. So why not follow a more successful model than a completely failed model, which is what it is. It's a completely failed model. Right. So if now we were going to implement policy, um, are you seeing any sections of the current government actually interested in doing this? Yes, actually, I had uh, I, I thought that the current Minister of Culture was very keen to initiate um, some kind of uh, change. In mm -hmm. fact, I found that um, a quite mindless sort of uh, 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 baying that that uh, resulted in his statement about the Kohinoor, for example, which was a perfectly valid uh, remark to make. I mean, mm -hmm. certain individual details, the statement from the Ministry of Culture got wrong, but the principle of it was quite the same. This object was not technically looted, so you can't actually ask for it to be to, to be restituted on those grounds. So they sort of um, put it in black and white, and there was this complete baying of blood saying, oh my God, you're sort of giving away the Kohinoor to the British. The truth of the fact is the British have the Kohinoor, okay? You're mm -hmm. not going to suddenly have a feature film styled raid and get it back. The only mm -hmm. way you can get it back is what it was initially. It was a diplomatic gift to attain certain political privileges for the people on the other side mm -hmm. from the British. And mm -hmm. you know what? I won't be surprised if in the next few years the British give it back to us as a diplomatic gift because they want more from <laughs> India than uh, now. Than, and surely the best thing to do and sweeten the deal is to give them the now. So then let's talk about the big diamonds that we know that were looted. For example, the Orlov diamond in the Russian Imperial Scepter or the uh, Daryai Noor and the Nural N in the Persian Royal Jewels. Um, yes. First, why don't people talk about those? Everything is the single point obsession with the Kohinoor, and nobody actually wants to talk about the things that uh, Tabernier stole from India, even the Hope Diamond, for example, or uh, where simply. Tabernier was a trader, so he's he bought them. He bought them. He might not have bought them at the at the fair market price, but we can't call him a looter. Okay, so, fair point. Uh, but the Darya uh, Inur and the Nura Lane were definitely looted. Well, yes, there was parts of Nadir Shah's loot of India. In fact, the entire Iranian crown jewels is the Mughal treasury. So yeah. if you can make a case to Iran saying return all our loot, then <laughs> you can make that case. But uh, I suppose that it's really not worth it. Unless I said, unless the time comes that Iran wants something from you so badly that it's willing to return those things. That's right. how diamonds work. They've always been a mechanism of foiling or sweetening a deal in a way that is that you know, the receiver cannot refuse. It wins concessions in negotiations. And that's how they, these ones will be used in the future as well. That is, they will be given back to us when India, when Iran wants something from us so badly that it wants to sweeten the deal. But the Kohinoor, I am very confident that this will come to pass. If the Indian government makes sure that post-Brexit 
negotiations take place in a sweet way, they have to hint the fact that maybe one of the things, you know what you could do, there's a certain 100 carat diamond that could be, you know, maybe. Yeah. Hmm. Um, anyway, um, HKB, I've kind of run out of questions now. Um, Deepika, do you want to suggest where I take this? Because we've got about uh, another... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I've rambled on enough. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think we've done 35 mi- more. We've no, done I, 40 Avijit, I really loved... Uh, Deepika, it was fantastic. I mean, it was very eye-opening, actually. What you, I, I never looked at it... I am a, I'm a chartered accountant uh, by profession and all I remember studying in my chartered accountancy was wealth tax and uh, previous purses and abolition of previous purses and the cases and all that. And, and those days I really looked at it, you know, it was a very, very vague notion. But what yeah. today was actually link it up. Exactly. Culture and, and the yeah. loss of culture. And, and that to me... Is a, is a revelation. I never looked at it that way, that a single act of a capricious woman was, would actually result not just Article 26 to 30, which, which actually the temples, but 70 to 20 persons also resulted in damage to Hindus and damage to our culture. I mean, this is, this is really an eye-opener. Thank you so much for that. Uh, no, I'm glad. As I said, that the Championing this cause is a very painful uh, thing. It's a, also an unpopular thing because, however, right wing, left wing, as as uh, Abhijit said, we're all fifty shades of grey in India. This is not a popular cause to champion. In fact, it's so unpopular that even people who are from this background would not do it publicly. Of course, a lot of them are even in government, but ask them to champion the, or oppose privy purses abolition, etc. They would never do it in public. It is such an unpopular cause. But I think somebody has to stand up for it and understand that, look, you know, we have done ourselves no favors by making our palaces fall to the ground. We have done ourselves absolutely no favors. Right. Um, quick question. If each one of us, like some of us aren't rich philanthropists that can actually acquire a lot of this, how does an ordinary Indian who is deeply interested in culture actually help out tangibly? Well, I would think the first thing is to lobby for the change in this law because basically it allows all of us to take part in the art market in India and mm-hmm. to acquire activities from people who are willing to sell and to actually acknowledge that they have them. Because at the moment, it, the persecution of owners is so strong that nobody wants to acknowledge that they have anything to sell. And the law is so poorly written, literally, that if I happen to have a broken armchair of no particular artistic value, which happened to be 100 years old, I couldn't move it from my house in, say, the hills in Missouri to my house in Rajasthan without taking permission from a government department. Mm. It is onerous and poorly written. That law must go. Right. And that's it. HKB, anything else? Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Abhijit. Thank you, Deepika. Thank you, HKV. Can we record the last, uh, the um, uh, closing up, the wrapping up kind of thing now? And it can be edited. Yeah, let's do that. I, is there a next person that you have to hand it over to? Like, you know, I heard the previous one and they said, tune in for X, Y, Z. Yes, yes. Don't worry, because this is, this is a, a recorded uh, uh, version. 
So we will, by the time we edit this, the next one is scheduled for the coming Sunday. So right. not to worry about that. I'm going to steal your closing line to wrap this up. So three, two, one, go. Well, Deepika, I think we're out of time, but thank you so much. You know, I did my BCom, and for me, all of this, this wealth tax, tax depreciation, all of this was just boring academic work. <laughs> and you have it all up for heritage specifically to them and why it is so, so, so important for every Indian to take an interest in this and understand the entire history behind it. Because what we learn about in school is completely different from what actually happened. It's portrayed as social justice as opposed to cultural destruction. And that's where your comparison, of course, of the Cultural Revolution in China was so important. So thank you, Deepika. One of the most enlightening conversations I've had. Uh, more power to you. And I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in to the Indica Book Clubs in chat. Um, thank you, guys. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, Deepika. Thank you, Abhijit. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.